With the nation split in two, both kingdoms of Israel and Judah spiral into a moral abyss. The high point that saw a magnificent temple dedicated by Solomon in Jerusalem and a nation resolved to follow the laws written down by Moses is now just a distant memory. Judah's kings have managed to cling on to the royal bloodline begun by David, while Israel has just seen its king deposed by one of his generals, who has now assassinated the entire royal family. Violence and lust for power are the driving force behind this monarchy, and both north and south of the border, pagan cultic religions are overshadowing God. In these pages of the Bible, the sinners far outnumber the saints, war is more commonplace than peace, and the corridors of power are stained with blood. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible Episode 81, The Greatest Showman. this very different Bible podcast. Different in that it neither bashes you over the head with the book, nor ridicules people for believing it. My angle is that most people outside the church, and surprisingly many inside it, have astonishingly little knowledge of what exactly is contained within its pages. Some stories, Adam and Eve, the Flood, the Good Samaritan, are universal, but many remain buried within the Bible's leatherette cover. Well, not anymore. I'm going through the entire book, 20 minutes at a time, retelling the story for a modern, time-poor audience who wishes they knew more about the book but would never dream of opening it. Glad I've got that off my chest. Follow me now to 10th century BC Israel, where an army commander called Basha has murdered King Nadab and seized the crown for himself. and Judah had been almost permanently at war under Nadab's rule, but tensions appear to ease under Basha, who rules Israel for 24 years. He appears to be every bit as ungodly as Jeroboam and Nadab, and is visited by a prophet named Jehu, who tells him that he has a message from God. God is about to wipe out Basha's family, the prophet says. The suggestion is that God placed Basha on the throne, yet he has led Israel's people astray. Basha's family members will die like Jeroboam's, the prophet tells him, using a much-loved Old Testament curse. Those who die in the city will be eaten by dogs, while those who die in the country will be devoured by birds. On his death, Basha is succeeded by his son Elah, and the prophet's promise soon becomes reality. Just two years into his reign, Elah is getting drunk at the home of his second-in-command when one of the officials who looks after the king's chariots assassinates him. The killer's name is Zimri, and he installs himself as Israel's king in place of Elah. As insurance against retaliation, he wipes out Basha's entire family, which is seen by the writer as fulfilment of Jehu's prophecy. For their active encouragement of pagan worship, Basha and Elah are punished. Zimri's reign lasts a single week, 
and he makes the fatal mistake of acting before winning the support of the nation. When he murders Elah, Israel's army is camped back at Gibbethon, and when news of Zimri's coup reaches the men, they pick their military commander Omri to be their king. The army abandons its plan A, which is to crush Gibbethon into submission, and instead marches on its own capital city, Tirza. Here, soldiers begin to erect siege works. Realising that the game is up and that he has failed to win the support of the people he most needs on his side, Zimri retreats to the royal palace and sets it on fire, dying in the flames. The book attributes the king's death to divine punishment and smears Zimri with having the same godless approach to life as Jeroboam. Incredibly, Zimri's is not the shortest reign in history. The record is held by King Louis XIX of France, who, inverted commas, reigned for 20 minutes in August 1830 before abdicating. There is a brief power struggle between Omri and another pretender called Tibni, which ends when Omni's supporters kill Tibni. Omri's claim to fame is that he buys a hill from a man called Shemer and builds a citadel on it. Six years into his 12-year reign, Omri moves Israel's capital from Tirzah to his new hilltop city, now called Samaria. A regular linguistic feature in the Books of Kings is that each new king does more evil than all who lived before him. Whether this refers to all people or just all kings is uncertain, but the suggestion is that the nations of Israel and Judah become progressively more debauched. Omri is no exception to this more sinful than all before him pattern and is clearly cast in the same mould as Jeroboam. His actions encourage Israel to move away from following God and readers are told that Israel's continued dependence on pagan idols arouses God's anger. The monarchy can now only go one of two ways. The northern kingdom can draw an ace and turn the ship around with a more God-oriented leader or things can get worse much, much worse. Of all the pagan-leaning kings to lead Israel, one particular monarch stands head and shoulders above the rest, Ahab. In his 1851 novel Moby Dick, Herman Melville describes Captain Ahab as an ungodly, godlike man, and biblical Ahab couldn't be more godless. Not only does he fall for one of the most evil women ever recorded by history, he actively promotes the worship of idols, setting up an altar to the god Baal in a purpose-built temple in Samaria and erecting a pole dedicated to the goddess Asherah. Among the many gods whose worship creeps into Israel and Judah at this time, perhaps the most important local pretender to challenge God's authority is the storm god Baal Hadad. Baal appears to be an import from Phoenicia, the long-disappeared Middle Eastern region based around the southern and eastern Mediterranean. Baal also means Lord. Baal-zebub, better known as Beelzebub, means Lord of the Flies. Some believe that Baal is a son of the Canaanite supreme god El and is an early contender to be the overall god of Israel until everyone realises that God is the only god worth bothering with. The Canaanite tribes believe that Baal controls the rain, which is why Ahab has so much confidence in his ability to end the drought. 
Asherah appears to be a fertility goddess and also proves enormously popular during the time of Israel and Judah's kings. Some Bible scholars believe that Old Testament Jews see Asherah as the wife or consort of Yahweh, though how or why these BC rebels think that God needs company is unclear. The name Asherah means grove and poplar trees are often used as sacred totems for her worship. If no trees are available, poles are erected instead. Archaeologists have found that many 6th century BC Jewish homes had either shrines to Asherah or figurines of the goddess, suggesting that they either worshipped this Canaanite deity instead of God, or that at the very least they were keeping their options open. Israel's king setting up pagan worship sites is a huge leap from tolerating pagan worship or even dabbling in it. In doing this, Ahab is actively endorsing paganism as if it is the state religion. In crossing a line that is so clearly offensive to God, it seems that Ahab is deliberately trying to provoke him, and it is remarkable that he survives as Israel's king for 22 years. He marries outside of Israel, making the Sidonian princess Jezebel his queen. She is a Baal worshipper, and Ahab soon busies himself making things ready for his wife's God rather than paying any attention to the one the Bible believes should be his own. Like all of Israel's kings thus far, the book describes Ahab as more evil than any that have gone before him. But unlike the others, it also reports that he does more to anger God than any of his predecessors. As a sign of Ahab's godless reign, he allows Jericho to be rebuilt against the express wishes of God. At the time of the city's original destruction, the Bible records God's wishes that it should remain a ruin forever. As punishment, Hiel, the man who rebuilds the city, loses two of his sons during its construction, a sign to Israel that the promises of God made long ago still hold power and that anyone who crosses him or deliberately opposes him will have to face some pretty awful consequences. Ahab is one of several Old Testament characters whose deeds are documented outside the Bible. He is one of an alliance of kings defeated by the Assyrian king Shalmaneser III at the Battle of Karka in 853 BC and is commemorated on the Kirk monoliths, now in the British Museum. The action in the first book of Kings now takes a detour from the lives of Israel and Judah's monarchs and focuses on the miraculous life of a prophet. Little is known about Elijah's backstory, except that he is from the region of Gilead. His first mission is to let the people of Israel know that God is in control, regardless of how the nation's kings behave. He announces to Ahab that no rain will fall until further notice, and that if God is real, then his words will come true. Following instructions which he believes are from God, Elijah makes camp by a small ravine leading to the river Jordan, where he is to drink the water and wait for ravens to bring him food. Sure enough, every morning and evening, birds arrive with bread and meat for the prophet. However, the drought promised by Elijah takes grip of Israel and becomes so severe that the brook from which the prophet has been drinking dries up. 
Hearing what he believes is God's voice, Elijah travels out of Israel to a town in Sidon to the home of a widow who has been briefed to supply him with food. Elijah follows orders and finds the woman gathering sticks by the main gate of the town. He asks her for water and a little bread, but she has no food, just a little olive oil and some flour. In fact, she's about to prepare one last loaf of bread before she and her son both die of hunger. Before she does this, Elijah asks the woman to make a loaf for him out of the little flour that she has and to use what is left to make one for her and her son. He shares with her that God has told him neither the oil nor the flour will be used up until the rains come. In what amounts to an extraordinary leap of faith or the actions of someone with nothing to lose, the woman takes the ingredients which should have been for her and her son and makes bread for her guest. As promised by the prophet, the supplies do not run out, and Elijah, the widow and her son eat their fill every day, despite the region being in the teeth of a famine. Sometime later, the boy falls sick and dies. Naturally, his mother is distraught. She accuses Elijah of letting her son die as a punishment for her sins. Elijah is mortified. The woman has shown him hospitality and has been kind to him, and so he takes direct yet unorthodox action. The prophet lies on top of the child three times, praying that God will bring him back to life. Incredibly, the boy revives, and Elijah is able to carry him back to his grateful mother, who is now surer than ever that Elijah is a man of God. Side note, some Jews believe that the boy brought back to life by Elijah was the prophet Jonah. Elijah isn't the only person in Israel fighting on the side of God. He finds an ally in the heart of the royal household. After the drought has entered its third year, the prophet hears God telling him to approach Ahab so that the rain can finally fall. The lack of rain is so severe that Ahab has summoned his palace administrator, Obadiah, to scour the springs and valleys of Israel so that they can find enough grass for their horses and mules so that they needn't kill any of them. This Obadiah is not the prophet whose short book appears later on in the Old Testament. The Bible has many characters with the same name. For example, there are three Zechariahs and four Zephaniahs. Some say that anyone making up a book would not want the confusion of characters with identical names, which adds a sense of historical accuracy to the accounts. And so, two Obadiahs. Palace administrator is a hugely important role, not unlike a vice president, yet Obadiah is a devout follower of God. Ahab doesn't realise that his senior official has secretly hidden 100 prophets in two caves to protect them from a purge by Queen Jezebel. Ahab helps Obadiah in the search for springs, each man taking a different part of the country. On his travels, Obadiah runs into Elijah and appears to be in awe of the holy man. Elijah tells him to let Ahab know that he's back in the country, a task which Obadiah sees as a suicide mission. Ahab has sent search parties to all Israel's neighbours, no doubt to punish Elijah for the catastrophic drought. 
If Obadiah tells Ahab that he has found Elijah only for the prophet to go to ground again, Obadiah will be killed. He protests that he has already done what he can to help God's prophets, hiding them and feeding them in some kind of 9th century BC resistance movement. But Elijah is adamant, announcing that he will be visiting Ahab that very day. Obediently, Obadiah leads the prophet to his king. Ahab and Elijah enjoy a relationship not unlike the one conducted by Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd, with Ahab plotting and Elijah repeatedly reigning on his parade. Elijah is brought to the king and the king tells him that he is a cause of harm against the nation. After all, the drought is having a catastrophic effect on Israel. Elijah fires back that it is Ahab and his Baal worship that is bringing trouble on Israel and summons people from across the country to join him on Mount Carmel. He tells Ahab to bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat with Jezebel at the royal palace. Once on Mount Carmel, Elijah asks his fellow Israelites to pick a winner, God or Baal, as there really is no middle ground. Like sulky children, the people refuse to answer and the suggestion is that they are either as complicit in Baal worship as Ahab or they are too terrified of him to admit their allegiance to God. The odds appear stacked against Elijah. He is the last remaining prophet of God while Baal and Asherah have nearly 1,000 representatives between them. Still, he doesn't let the numbers faze him and allows the pagans to kill two bulls, one for them and another for him. He has the animals cut into pieces and placed on some firewood. It's a simple contest. The winning team is the one whose god can set fire to the meat. The pagans are allowed to go first and they spend the entire morning yelling at Baal to answer them while dancing around their altar. Elijah teases them suggesting that their gods might be deep in thought, or busy, or travelling. He tells them to shout louder in case Baal is having a nap and can't hear them. The men turn up the volume and even begin slashing themselves with knives and continue working themselves into a frenzy until evening, but to no avail. Baal, if he is there, fails to make an appearance. Once the pagan prophets have failed, Elijah calls the people to come forward to repair an earlier altar to God on the mountaintop, which has been torn down as part of Ahab and Jezebel's purge. Elijah then takes 12 stones, one stone for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and uses them to rebuild the altar. He digs a trench around it, adds some firewood, and places strips of meat from the bull on top. Like the host of an illusionist show, he then asks the crowd to pour four large jars of water over everything, then another four, then another four, until everything is soaked and the trench is full. After a short prayer in which he asks God to make it known that he is in charge of Israel and that Elijah is his servant who is simply following orders, he asks God to answer him. That way, the people will realise that he, not Baal, is God and will turn back to him. At this point, flames utterly destroy the meat, the wood and the stones. 
They even dry up all the water, and the Bible describes the phenomenon as the fire of the Lord. Understandably, the crowd is hugely impressed and concludes that Elijah's God is much more reliable and powerful than both Baal and Asherah. The Israelites fall on their faces and shout that God is the only God, an emphatic victory for Israel's supreme deity. It's an astonishing stunt for Elijah to pull off and one of the greatest acts of faith in the Bible. The theatre adds to the drama and it's easy to see how the mass of ordinary people in Israel might be awed at the power of Elijah's God. This is bad news for Ahab, whose sole focus appears to be pleasing his pagan queen. It also seems like Elijah must have a death wish to be openly confronting Israel's royal family in this way. Will this renegade prophet succeed in standing up to the powers of darkness, or will the might of Israel's king hunt him down and destroy him? The amazing adventures of Elijah continue next time. is written and produced by me Chaz Bayfield with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. If you have any comments or feedback please do send them to contact at holybible.com. If you like what you hear why not leave a review? Better still tell your friends. Thanks for listening and see you next time.